Amen. Thank you, Pastor Tad. Good morning. I'm Chuck. <laughs> Great to see you. Really excited to uh, be back and jump in together. Um, if you've got children up through fifth grade that you'd like to go to, some age-specific teaching that's offered now called Gospel Project. Parents, you can walk your kids back. And uh, everybody else will be in Colossians 3 today. So uh, you can turn there, and if you need a Bible, underneath the seat in front of you, you should be able to find one in page 572. 573 is where we'll be. A um, couple personal things before we jump in. As Tad said, I've been um, out a while. I was for the month of June on sabbatical, and then uh, the last week and a half uh, of July, so of the first week and a half in July, sorry. This may be a bit rusty. It's been a while. Um, we, uh, my family and I went to uh, Mexico to the beach, and so we're able to rest there. So I want to say thank you for uh, that time. Um, I think it was the seventh or eighth year of um, pastoring here. The church began offering me a sabbatical each year, and uh, that's been, uh, frankly, I don't really want to take it. I'd rather be here with you every week, um, and yet the fruit that comes from it has just been enormous in my own life, and I think in the church as well. So uh, thank you so much for that. And then, of course, time to, to just relax and hang with the family was absolutely wonderful. So um, in the time I was away on sabbatical, one of the things I did this year was uh, Hansley, who led us today. Thank you again, brother. Well, spent a week with me, and then um, Rob Krauss, who was here preaching one of those weeks, who's a pastor and missionary in Italy. He came up and spent a week with me. And then Brian Jerry, who we sent out four years ago to uh, pastor a church in Mesa, came up and spent a week with me. So that was wonderful to be with those brothers and uh, rejoice in what we have in Christ together and talk about their ministries and what's happening and, and be an encouragement to them. So you're gifting uh, other churches and ministries in that time, so thank you for that. Um, it's unusual, I don't know if you realize this, to have three, four, five, six people in-house who can preach well. And uh, each of those brothers did a fantastic job. And uh, somebody said to me this morning when I walked in, uh, you got some big shoes to fill. <laughs> and uh, that's exactly right. And so uh, that's, that's a wonderful thing. So thank you to those of you who uh, filled in today. Uh, and then... Uh, Tad mentioned VBS already, but uh, what a great week uh, we had this past week. It was, it was wonderful, and so many of you were involved in that. Um, if you weren't and you want to know who was, look around. The ones that look disheveled and their eyes are kind of crossed, those are the folks that did VBS. So it's a big deal. It takes uh, a lot of time and energy and effort, but we were able to see uh, just a whole bunch of kids here clearly who Christ is. So thank you to all of you who are involved in that. Uh, now for today, uh, we're in uh, Colossians 3, 5 through um, 11, and they saved one of the happy, easy texts for me. Are you ready? All right, follow with me if you would. It says down there at the bottom of the page, if you're in one of these blue Bibles, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. 
In these two you all once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is God's Word. Uh, this summer, we've been exploring the book of Colossians. If you've been with us each week, you'll, you'll know that. If you're new today, welcome. We, uh, every week, just take the next paragraph and look through what God says in His Word. And in Colossians, we, uh, we soar to some of the highest heights of theology. A few days ago, I went back through chapters 1 and 2 and the start of 3, just made a list of things we've learned together about Jesus. Let me recount just a few of them for you. Colossians tells us that Jesus is the creator and sustainer, that He's the Savior, that He's the beloved Son, that He's the supreme Lord of the cosmos. It tells us that He's preeminent, that He's wholly unique, that He's the only hope of the world, that He's the first in God's new creation and the head of the church. It tells us that in Jesus are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and that means that in Christ we have the fountain of everything good and lovely and wonderful, that Jesus is the one through whom dead sinners are made alive that He's the ruler of rulers, the epicenter of God's plan for salvation, and last week that this Jesus is our very life. Amen? This is who Jesus is. Now, each of those statements are glories that we could gaze into for all eternity and never exhaust their meaning. Yet at the risk of sounding irreverent, I really must ask, In what ways do those ideas about Jesus matter practically? I mean, we said amen to them, we nodded our heads, a few of you had smiles on your faces, but what difference do those ideas make in everyday life? Maybe I could put it this way, thanks, pastor, for telling me that Jesus is preeminent But I don't know what to do with that while my butt's in the chair in here, let alone on Monday morning when I'm at work. How is this supposed to change our lives? Well, we're in the part of the book now where that question begins to get answered. Don't miss this. There is not a single truth in Scripture meant to sort of serve as an an intellectual tidbit that you hear in church and then you stick on the shelf. And then next week when you come back, you sort of pull it off and tinker with it a little bit and then put it back on the shelf again. That's not what theology is for. There's nothing in the book of Colossians, let alone the entire Bible, meant to serve merely as an intellectual idea to make us smarter. Theology is the faucet from which all refreshment and nourishment are designed to flow. Rightly understood, everything I just said about Jesus is immensely and eminently 
practical. And so if, if Jesus sort of fills our gaze, then that will have a big impact on the disappointment of a fight with your roommate, on the daily pressures parents face, especially the ones with little kids, or on the challenges of a boss who is ungodly. If who Jesus is forms the basis of how you think about life, then nothing will be sort of unsaturated with truth about Jesus. One great preacher put it this way, for Paul, so Paul's the one who wrote Colossians, for Paul, doctrine demands duty, creed determines conduct, facts demand acts. Josh did a great job last week of helping us get into chapter 3, which is the, the hinge in the book where we turn from theology to practice, from truths about Jesus to what we do with those truths about Jesus. And this morning, we're going to jump in with both feet into the, the sort of ethical and moral implications of all these important ideas about Christ, what Christ has done, who Christ is, what He's doing now, who His character shows us that He is. This is where we find ourselves for the rest of the summer. From this point on, Colossians will focus on how we live as the people of God. And it does so by beginning with a list of commands. Now, this is not a boring catalog of stale and pointless rules. If you hear it like that, you are hearing wrong. You're hearing incorrectly. That's not the way it's written. That's not what it's for. Instead, we, we find an invigorating snapshot of the Christian life and the church, what we are, and therefore how we are to live. In Christ, you see, we've been made new. We've been welcomed into a new family. We're part of a new humanity, and therefore we're progressively learning to live like it. Notice over the next several weeks as Paul moves back and forth from identity to lifestyle, identity to lifestyle. You might think of it like a seesaw. Paul gives some, some commands. He says, this is what Christians must do or not do. He directs behavior. But then in the middle, he'll teeter back to, that's because of who you are. This is your identity. We are Christians. We're in Christ. And so there's sort of this teeter-tottering from who we are to what we do, from what we do to who we are, rolling back and forth, rocking between the two. The two must always, always, always go together. I encourage you later today with a family member or with a roommate to read all of chapters 3 and 4 and just watch how Paul says, here's some commands, here's what you're supposed to do, and then he pushes up with his legs, teeters us back to, that's because of who you are. Now, because of who you are, pushes with again, here's what you do. That's how commands in the Bible work. You see, if you don't know Jesus Christ, then you have absolutely no power to stop, in a lasting way, sinful behavior. It's like getting in your car and trying to start it, and then the Arizona heat has killed your battery again. 
Being born in sin has killed your ability to stop ceasing in a lasting way sinful behavior. And even if you stop one, you're going to have to whack them all. Another one's going to come up. And if you're successful at both, then you're going to get arrogant and prideful about it, think you're better than others, and guess what? That's another sin. So it's just impossible. And yet, for a Christian, you've been given a new source, a new life, new power, resurrection power. And therefore, not only can, you must learn to obey. Identity drives behavior. Christianity is uh, not a list of rules such that if you conform to them, you get blessings from God. Christianity is God graciously giving hopeless sinners new life that they did not earn, blessing them beyond measure. And because of that, then we are learning to obey. Do you hear how different those are? They're dramatically different. One is salvation by works, which does not work. And one is salvation by grace, which drives a different kind of living. Now, the big idea in verses 5 through 11 is because Christ is now your life, live like it by putting off your old sinful ways. Now, my guess is that some of us, when we heard this text read, didn't hear it like that. We heard it like stale rules. God does not want fun. So let me read it again, just the first half, starting in verse 5. And hear it through the lens, uh, uh, hear it tuned to what I've said so far. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming in these two you once walked when you were living in them. Uh, I have a friend who's a fighter pilot uh, for a branch of the military. Think, uh, those of you who are old enough here, think like Top Gun action. Which, by the way, there's another one coming. Who's excited about that? At least they say it's coming. It's been kicked back like nine times. But... Uh, let's call my friend Mark, just to keep his identity concealed. Uh, when Mark was in Colorado Springs at the Air Force Academy years ago, a friend shared the gospel with him, and it clicked. God saved him. Mark came to know Jesus Christ as a roughly 20-year-old uh, at the Air Force Academy. Now, if you've seen that movie Top Gun, the whole... Um, um, ultra-intelligent, cocky, alpha male that is portrayed in that movie is exactly what the culture is like among people who are training to be fighter pilots. And then once they become them, that's the majority of that group. So think lots of beer, lots of foul talk, lots of sex outside marriage. You've got what it looks like. Really smart bright, intelligent, wild people. So my friend heard the gospel. He was absolutely convinced of Jesus' death and resurrection and his need for salvation. So he turned from sin and he put his trust in Jesus Christ. Mark's friend, who shared the gospel with him, did an excellent job of telling him how to become a Christian. 
but he did a really lousy job of helping him learn how to live as a Christian. And so, as a result, Mark got what we might call gospel beginnings, but he didn't get gospel continuings. And consequently, my friend was saved, but then kept right on sinning in all of these ways that were so common to the people he was around. So consequently, he was a follower of Jesus, but living as though in many ways he was not a follower of Jesus, but with one huge distinction. All of these things that marked his life, that he did and enjoyed, now when he did them, he felt really bad. It, it no longer gave him the thrill, the untarnished, unkeep-you-up-at-night enjoyment that he once had. Why? Well, because while Mark looked the same on the outside, on the inside, he had experienced a dramatic change. He was a, a new man internally. Before becoming a Christian, my friend was spiritually dead. His conscience was busted. His mind was consumed with self. He worshiped all the wrong things, and he was enslaved by carnal desires. But in Christ, my friend had become a new creation. He'd been reborn. And by God's grace, he was a new man. He was no longer actually a slave to those former behaviors that he couldn't couldn't control. He was no longer alienated from God. He was now spiritually alive. He'd been freed to obey and live at peace with God. And so this man who had been made spiritually alive, when he lived as though he was still spiritually dead, he felt really, really crummy. And that meant sin didn't have its same pizzazz. But no one was telling him this. He didn't understand As a new man, disobedience brought misery. God had changed his identity, and now his behavior needed to catch up. And so, as he tells the story, Mark went about a year like this, having no exposure to the Scriptures, no exposure to uh, discipleship, no exposure to simple explanations that explain why this happens. And then one day he woke up and decided, this really sucks. I'm more miserable now than I was before I came to Christ. Something's got to give. And so he went to a church. In that church, he heard not only gospel beginnings, but he began to hear gospel continuings. And things began to click. His behavior with the support of a church began to line up with his new identity. Now, I don't mean that partying was then never a temptation and that sex lost its appeal. But Mark came to see that who he was in Christ meant he'd been freed to live a better life. He'd been freed to obey. And as one united to Christ, resurrection power now belonged to him. He had a power that meant he could be the only one that didn't go out and be fine and, in fact, be happier. He could live different because he was different. This list of commands in Colossians 3, brothers and sisters, 
must be heard in that light. Colossians 1.1 didn't start with, here's what you must do. Why? It's because if we get this stuff out of order, you no longer have Christianity. Christianity is not principally what you do for God. It's what God has done for you. And therefore, because of what He's done for you, you can now live different. The privileges we enjoy, Christian, as new creations are what we walk in in order to obey. John Owen, one of the greatest uh, Puritans, great theologian, wrote this. Our greatest hindrance in the Christian life is not our lack of effort, but our lack of acquaintance with our privileges. I hope you'll let that sink in. This means, among other things, that you no longer have sin as a master, but you have Jesus. And while sin takes and takes and takes and takes, Jesus gives and gives and gives and gives. You died to sin, and so this paragraph says, now live like it. The key you see to living the obedient Christian life, the central issue, is not how hard you grit your teeth to avoid sin, but rather it's, number one, learning who Christ is. Number two, learning who He's remade you to be. And then number three, choosing today to honor God in the stuff of everyday life. It's got to flow in that order. The list of behaviors in chapter 5, we must not practice. If you look at them closely, brothers and sisters, they begin with sexual immorality and then move to impurity and then passion, referring to the passion of lust, not giving in to the desire for sexual experiences outside of the marital union of one man and one woman. And then it moves to evil desires. Again, clearly referring to misplaced sexual appetites that must not be feasted upon. And then we come to the last one of the five, namely covetousness. Perhaps even that one in this context is being used as a reference to sexual sin. What would that mean? Well, it would mean that he's saying uh, being greedy and acting on it in a way that you are desiring who is not rightly yours is incompatible with your new identity in Christ. Today we are inundated with the message that we must give ourselves to whatever sexual urges we have. And to be totally blunt about it, society has gone sexually insane. To claim that mere consent is nowhere near enough To assert that it is good and right to restrict any sexual activity to heterosexual monogamous marriage is just downright bizarre. I mean, you're a freak if you believe that. Welcome to the freak show. (laughs) But don't miss this. It's easy sort of to sit around and complain and bemoan and say, oh, society is so horrible, it's never been so bad before. 
things are just, we're hell in a handbasket. If that were true, why was this list here 2,000 years ago? It apparently was true of the Greco-Roman world as well. Now, if I could kind of carefully walk into this a little bit. My assumption is the vast majority of us have in some way, shape, or form failed to honor God with at least one or more of those five. And I don't mean failed like 20 years ago. I mean like failed since I last saw you in the last six weeks. Does it matter? Yes. Listen to how Paul names it. He calls it idolatry. What is idolatry? It's worshiping false gods. Giving ourselves over to covetousness is believing the experience we get from that greed will provide more pleasure and is worthier of our affection than God. Christian sexual sin is irreconcilable with who you are now in Christ. And so if you are engaged in it, stop and repent. You hereby have permission to not listen to another word of this sermon, to do business with God. Right where you are right now, turn from that sin by repenting of it, acknowledging it to God in prayer. Tell Him you're sorry. Seek His forgiveness. Scriptures tell us if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's true whether you've done one or all five. Confess your sin to God. Now, I want to push you even further. Habitual sexual sin is extremely difficult to actually stop. And so I want to encourage you and urge you to not only repent privately before God, but to also go to another brother or sister in Christ and confess your sin to them. The Scripture tells us, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you might be healed. Your chances of actually stopping that behavior in a way that lasts increase exponentially if you're not doing it alone. If you invite men, another man or two or three in Christ in. Ladies, if you do the same with other ladies. And they don't... um, They don't treat you as though you now have nine heads. But they say, I will walk with you and pray for you. I am a fellow struggler too. But we are new people in Christ. And then they check in with you. Your chances of actually living as who you are grow much higher. So 
repent before God, confess to one another. I would say if you're actually serious about living as a Christian, you will do both of those things, not just one of them. Make it a priority to seek out who you will talk to today. Sin, especially sexual sin, is like mold. It grows best in the dark. And so bring it into the light. The light of God's grace, yes. The light of support from brothers and sisters, yes. Both. If you aren't sure who to talk with, then come to one of your pastors. Any of us would be glad to walk with you in that way. I promise you, church, if you will take seriously this list of commands in light of who you are in Christ and begin to resist the urges that you have, God will slowly, yes, but he, he will cause your urges to change. They will not be as strong towards sin and they will be much stronger towards God. And you'll find you're much happier. That life is better saying no to these things. Now, much more could be said, but let's look at the other half of the no-nos. So, verse 8. Now, you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. If the first list of sins is mainly sexual in nature, the second list of sins is mainly about speech. God's Word is astonishingly relevant just before, you, before we do work here, just think about this for a moment. Paul writing to a culture so dramatically different than ours. 2,000 years ago, when he made his lists of things, Christians don't do this, he started with sex and then he went to speech. Oh my gosh, could there be two more relevant things for us? It's amazing, isn't it? It's incredible. Now, I said earlier that society has gone sexually insane. It's also gone bonkers in how we talk to each other. But this is not a list for people out there. This is not a list we Christians are supposed to read and bemoan how bad it is in Tempe. And we're supposed to be looking in here. This is not a list for them out there. This is about us in here. One scholar I read this week put it this way. Like wild plants blown by the wind, hateful words can scatter their seeds far and wide giving birth to more anger wherever they land. Beloved, we need not be told how powerful sins of speech are. Each of us bear both the scars and have inflicted the blows that caused the scars on others. Today's a great day for us to use our mouths instead of for evil, for the good of repenting. Angry, defensive, selfish, defaming, abusive speech, which so mark life today, 
is incompatible with who you are in Christ. That is not, Christian, who you are. Therefore, don't talk like it is. Christ is our life, and Christ never lashes out. He never uses words to dehumanize another. And so those who are in Him are learning not to do so as well. As a new humanity in Christ, the church is to be an ecosystem of grace in which we're learning how our speech gives life and encouragement to each other instead of a putrid, filthy defilement of one another. We are to be a display of the glory and the greatness of God in how we speak to each other. Because God has broken the bonds of sin and granted us new life in Christ, our words take a different shape. They help rather than hurt, which is why it's so important for us to apologize when we fail in our speech with one another. Now, there are two words that some of you need some practice saying. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Try it with me. I'm sorry. If you're a guy, chances are especially you need help with those two words. And chances are, men, that we struggle sexually and we struggle with speech. Jesus said it is by our love, brothers and sisters, one for another, that the world will know that we belong to Jesus, that the world will know that the Father sent Jesus. So how we talk to one another gets down at the very core of why Jesus came. It ought to be no surprise that much of the church in this country is weak, anemic, pathetic, and ineffective because we talk like everybody else. Why would we expect to see life after life after life coming to know Jesus Christ if we speak like people who are still spiritually dead. Here's the thing about our words, though. Just like they have the power to do evil when we speak like we're not in Christ, they have the power to do tremendous good when we speak like those who are in Christ. Imagine a community where words are used for good, not harm, where people don't lie to each other, even about little things, where people express care and concern and counsel and compassion. Imagine a community where rebukes are given when needed, but in humility and kindness, where the absolute best is assumed of each other, and we speak to each other like we assume the best both in public and in private. Imagine a place where 
uh, encouragement and prayer and affirmation and blessing are the ordinary disposition, and therefore that's what rolls off the tongue. Well, that community is to be what it sounds like to be part of Church on Mill and every other church. This is typical for those who are in Christ. Do we fail at times? Yes. But that's not who we are. Verse 11, notice, starts with the word here. That's a reference to the church. In the church, where Christ is preeminent and His people are fluent in the gospel, sins of sex and sins of speech are becoming more and more and more atypical instead of living like we used to. Now we use our bodies and our speech to build each other up. That's why the paragraph ends with this verse that seems so out of place. Verse 11, it says, here in the church, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, Christ is all and in all. Doesn't that seem like, did he uh, get lost? What does that have to do with this list of rules? Well, here's what it has to do with it. In the church of Jesus Christ, the distinctions that used to divide us are now irrelevant. They simply don't matter. Greek and Jew, that's racial. Circumcised and uncircumcised, that's religious. Barbarian and Scythian, that's cultural. Slave and free, that's social. Race, religion, culture, societal distinctions cease to matter among the people of God because we're no longer either bound together by those things or divided by those. No, we've been raised with Christ. He is now our life. We share the same Father. We have the same elder brother. We sit at the same table of grace. We are equals. The things that used to make us like glue with people like us and cause us to go at people not like us are irrelevant among us. You could say we now bear the same last name. We're family. And so we relate to one another as people who are part of the same family. You don't want to have sex with your sister. And you don't talk to your dad like that. Instead, we love, real love, sacrificial love. And our sexual behaviors and our speech look like it because that's who we are. If we think of one another as we are in our new identity, sins of speech will become less and less common. And sins of sex will become less and less frequent. The central image used in this paragraph is that of clothing. So, 
Uh, think of the two of you who go outside and run this time of year. The rest of us who just walk outside from here to the car, and you're stinky. You're sweaty, you're gross, you're dirty, you're nasty. Your clothes need to be changed. That's the picture. Paul says, you're a new person. And so, take off that old way of life, that filthy, stinky, sweaty, nasty attire. Take it off. And instead, get a fresh new set of behavior out of the closet. Put it on. And none of us would work in the yard and get disgusting and set that pile of clothes in the house on the floor only to go eat a meal and then come and put it back on. But that's what a Christian's doing when they've been given a new life and then they go pick up that nasty, sweaty clothes and put them back on. That's gross. And yet, every day, and many, 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 many times throughout the day, we're tempted to pick that ratty, stinky, sweaty shirt back up. And so, Paul tells us, take off, put on, because it's got to become a habitual way of life. And frankly, to actually make progress in sins of sex and sins of speech, we need one another. And so as you seek today, brothers and sisters, to live more obedient and consistent with who you are, do not do so alone. We pray with me? God, thank you today for the clarity of your scripture where it tells us to dress in accordance with who we are. We might say that you've told us today to be what we is. I pray that every weight of conviction in this room that needs to be felt would be felt. And then, as my dear friends repent of sin, I pray that there would, there would literally be a physical experience of that being lifted, because that's what's happening. God, give us a deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper knowledge of who Christ is in order that we would have a more rich, full-orbed understanding of who we now are, and as a result, we pray that we would increasingly be tapping into the power of the resurrection together to live consistent with who you've made us to be. I pray that the lies of the enemy that would whisper to us, this works for everybody but you. You You've already tried and you failed. See, it doesn't work. Don't bother. It's too late for you. you you're, you're not really a Christian if you look at her like that. You're not, you, you, 
you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have yelled that at that person if you really believed this. God, I pray that your word and your spirit would help us to see those are lies. And that in Christ we would walk in gospel continuings, not just gospel beginnings. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.